ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with ETF Trends and ETF Database or any of its affiliates. ETF Trends and ETF Database participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF Trends and ETF Database of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. And now a word from iShares. The shift to a low-carbon economy is changing the way people invest iShares Sustainable ETFs help you position your portfolio to manage sustainability-related opportunities and risks, such as climate change. Get your share of progress at iShares.com sustainable. Visit iShares.com to view a prospectus which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully before investing. Risk includes principal loss. There is no guarantee any fund will exhibit positive or favorable sustainability characteristics. Prepared by BlackRock Investments, LLC. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me this week will be Dave Nodig, financial futurist at ETF Trends and ETF Database. And it's only May, but I'm going to tell you right now, Dave just wrote a piece that, in my mind, will be one of the best things you read all year long. And there's definitely a lot to this, but in a nutshell, Dave explored this topic of the growth of passive investing and what some of the potential future ramifications might be, including negative ramifications. And as I just noted, Dave is a financial futurist. So this is his job, right? His job is to peer into the future and consider these types of things. But it's interesting because even before Dave wrote this piece, I felt like I was seeing a lot more uh, negativity around passive investing this year for whatever reason. It, it just seemed like more people were taking shots at indexing. And that became even more visible recently with people like uh, Elon Musk and uh, Kathy Wood tweeting out concerns over passive. Now, uh, clearly, Dave was seeing some of the same things I was. However, lucky for all of us, Dave is way smarter than I am and can dig into this stuff at a level I just can't go to. So he did uh, all the heavy lifting here, and we're going to discuss some of his key takeaways, which, by the way, nothing on this topic is definitive. Dave would be the first to tell you that. Uh, we're all learning and evaluating as we go. But I thought Dave had some really insightful takeaways that I think you'll find interesting, uh, just given that both Dave and I are proponents of passive investing overall. So I'll start there this week. I'll then be joined by Greg Friedman, head of ETF management and strategy at Fidelity, who continues building out their ETF business. Uh, it's now over $30 billion. But what I think is noteworthy here 
is more recently they've gotten much more aggressive at launching thematic ETFs. And in April, they launched a crypto industry and digital payments ETF and a metaverse ETF. So we'll look at both of those. Uh, we'll find out why Fidelity is getting more aggressive in the uh, thematic space and, and how Greg views ETFs like this in a portfolio. And of course, with the two ETFs I just mentioned, obviously there is a lot going on uh, with crypto right now. So I'm interested in hearing how Greg thinks investors should be viewing that space longer term. And then on that note, to close this week, uh, th this is absolutely perfect. I'll be joined by Kelly Yee, head of research at Coindesk Indices. She's going to discuss the future of crypto and offer some thoughts on what we have seen here recently with uh, crypto as a whole basically getting chopped in half, if not more. So we'll discuss that and also talk about what Coindesk Indices is up to. I, I think a lot of people know Coindesk as a uh, crypto news outlet, but they're building out a pretty powerful indexing business. So I certainly look forward to that conversation. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter at Nate Geraci, or you can send comments to etfprime.com. Let's chat with ETF Trends, Dave Nodig. Now we're joined by the experts at ETF Trends and ETF Database, the world's largest independent ETF-centric source for top industry news, trends, and insights. By keeping rates so low, that is in effect driving investor money into the equity market. They're not just telling you what positions they've got, they're telling you precisely what trades they've made. It's a little bit of a who's who of the corporate bond space. Dave, welcome back to the uh, podcast. I feel like it's been a little while. Uh, it has. It has been a, been, been a minute, as the kids would say. <laughs> All right. So uh, you, you wrote what I thought was seriously one of the best pieces I've read in a while last week. It was titled The Ethics of Indexing Redux. And as I noted at the top, uh, th this followed some tweets from uh, Elon Musk and, and Kathy Wood, who were voicing concerns over the growth of passive and its impact on market function and, and proxy voting, all of the stuff you and I have covered ad nauseum, and I feel like mostly shot down over the years, right? But but this piece you wrote, I, I felt like you came at this topic from a bit of a different angle in that you focused on flows, right? Where new money is going versus just looking at the sheer percentage of assets and in, uh, in passive. But but let me ask you this before we we get too deep here. W was the motivation for writing this piece, those tweets that I mentioned from Kathy and Elon and some of the other stuff in the media this year, or was there another reason you uh, dove into this? Well, there's sort of two things going on at once. So um, obviously, it's always great when you have a little bit of a news hook, like you know Elon Musk saying just about anything seems to be news these days. Um, and, so, and so that obviously uh, creates a nice little hook for it. But at the same time, there has been a bunch of really interesting and quite novel research done in the last year on this issue about uh, the the impact of passive flows, the and how price discovery is really working in indexes, uh, and and I thought it was worth revisiting some of that. And when I say recent, uh, you know, the paper that that we'll be talking about here, the first draft of it was only published, I think, in June last year. It's still being updated, so it's sort of evolving in real time. And then there's another uh, sort of a companion piece and and numerous uh, sort of academic articles, sort of already critiquing and trying to understand 
understand it. So there is some new information or at least some new analysis about the impact of passive flows, passive flows on markets. Uh, and at the same time, obviously, with the markets going down as they have been and volatility up, everybody's looking for a scapegoat. So, uh, you know, everybody's always pointing a finger at something. So pointing a finger at passive, yet another reason to take a take a fresh look. All right. So let me do this. Let me uh, set the table and then we'll get into all of this. And the, the bottom line is in your piece, you set out to explore three key questions. And those three questions were, number one, is the current dominance of passive strategies in flows? And it flows impacting how markets function. Uh, number two, if so, is it possible to determine how? Like in a way that uh, might influence decisions we make as investors. And then the third question was, does pooled ownership, uh, so mutual funds, ETFs, uh, closed-in funds, do, do they create any winners or losers in a way that isn't representative of that ownership? And uh, again, obviously a lot here. What I thought I would do, I'm just going to uh, open this up to you and we'll see where this goes, which I think could be anywhere with you and I. But, but let, let's just start high level. What did you find as you sought out answers to these three questions? Well, so so I should let, let me let me back up a second here and and sort of point to the specific paper we're talking about because it's something I think um, the average financial advisor probably should be paying attention to. So this is a piece um, by two gentlemen, Gabay G B G A B A I X and Koijen K O I J E N um, at uh, N B E R National uh, Bureau of Economic Research, along with a whole raft of folks from Harvard and Chicago Booth. Um, so like a, a real heavy hitters group um, addressing the issue of how do flows impact prices. The way they approached this was to ask the question mathematically, um, is there, you know, when a when million dollars shows up in the market, does it matter how? Does it matter if that million dollars is one trade or a hundred trades? Does it matter if that million dollars is going into one stock or an index of stocks? And they, you know, I won't, I won't belabor it, but you go through the entire paper and I think it has held up to a lot of peer review and some sort of critical articles as well. What they discover um, is that as opposed to what you would expect from the efficient market hypothesis, which is that that incremental million dollars shouldn't move prices all that much on their own absent any fundamental change in the stock, uh, what they actually find is that pretty much algorithmically, a million dollars going into Tesla makes Tesla's market cap go, go up by a million dollars, meaning that there's effectively no selling in that process, if that makes sense, meaning the, 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 the flow itself is baking in the value of its trade. More interestingly, what they find is when you then apply that to, say, a basket of 500 stocks, i.e. any index creation, uh, it actually is five times as impactful, meaning a million dollars showing up in SPY makes the S&P 500 go up by $5 million. So it's almost a money multiplier effect that I want to use. It's not quite it's not really the same math, but it acts as an inelasticity multiplier on how flows impact prices. It's been very controversial. Obviously, there are a lot of folks out there who believe that prices should only move with fundamentals. Um, and so it's it's an interesting question. But if true, and sort of mathematically, it certainly appears to be true, it has a lot of implications for things we think we know about the markets. Um, you know, it, it's certainly some of the math behind the relentless bid, right? Because this flow is largely driven by retirement savings. Um, and if those folks are showing up into the market as regular buyers, then you expect that to just keep pushing prices up over and over again uh, at, at a greater impact than you might expect. 
Um, so that's that's the sort of the nutshell version of it. Um, I, it's got a lot of people's hair on fire because it does seem to violate the efficient markets hypothesis. But I think I think most rational people who've been in the market kind of think the efficient markets hypothesis has been a pretty unproven hypothesis for a long time. It explains some, but definitely not all of what we see in markets. With the example that you just walked through with a million dollars coming into a single stock versus going into, uh, say, an equity index, just in layman's terms, what what is the rationale in the paper for why there is a higher multiplier uh, for the money going into an index fund? What, why is that? Well, so they, so causally, it's difficult to say this is the specific reason. There are a couple of explanations that you can put in there. The simplest one is if you're a market maker and you have to sell somebody your Tesla that you have in inventory in order to make a trade happen, that is an easier thing to do in terms of your inventory management and your liquidity across your book than to do that with 500 stocks all at once, right? Because it, to some extent, you're always going to be hamstrung by the least liquid, the thing you have the less the least of in that basket of 500 stocks. So there is there is some argument to be made there that because you are sort of monolithically requiring an irreplaceable asset, um, that has more value than just say, I want to buy Ford because a lot of people, certainly a lot of investors would say, okay, there are a lot of replacements for Ford. If I'm running a value proposition fund or a dividend fund, there are a lot of things that you can substitute for Ford to get similar exposure. It's very difficult to say you can find a substitute, say, for the top thousand stocks in the United States. You can't just say, okay, well, I'll just go buy the DAX. That's not the same. Uh, however, you know, a, a small basket of three or four stocks that are all uh, in tech look can often look a lot like any other basket of three or four stocks in tech if you construct them that way. So if you're an advisor or an investor out there and, and you started heading down this path a little bit, what are some of the potential implications? Here, let's assume that the math here all works out, that this is all correct, this is true in the markets. What, what, what does this mean to investors? Well, so, and this is, I think, an important point. I'm approaching this not from the perspective of something is wrong, we should do something. And a lot of people, when they engage in this conversation, active versus passive, that's the immediate approach that like somehow we're all trying to get rid of passive managers or something like that, or we're trying to pass laws and change regs. I just don't think those things are realistic. So I'm just interested in trying to understand how the world actually works. So the 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 paper here and the some of the the subsequent dialogue would suggest that if this is true then it means the characteristics of markets are a little bit different than we might expect right so we now if this is true that means that we have a reason to expect that long term flows will continue to support markets regardless of short term volatility that's the relentless bid argument right the money flowing in continuously into 401k plans until it doesn't right that's the other the hiccup on this is this works in both directions. So when we reach the sort of mythical drawdown period where more money is flowing out of equities because baby boomers are selling to buy bonds than millennials are putting into the 401k market, this can invert and all of a sudden you have this negative flow impact on the same thing. So it means that we need to be careful of those tipping points and that when you get to either side of that tipping point, either ramping up into it or ramping down, markets will move more than we might otherwise expect. And that feels very true to me. I think we all have had that sense of like, you know, golly, the VIX is only 25, but boy, it seems like it's moving a lot. That's true, right? That's the market we're in right now. Um, so I think that acknowledgement that we live in this 
tailwind market with higher potential volatility and higher tails than we might expect. I think that feels true to a lot of investors. And the answer to what you do with that in a portfolio is likely add convexity, right? Add things in your portfolio that either give either sort of have the effect of kicking in when the market goes way down or kicking in when the market goes way up. You know, I always like to play a devil's advocate on these types of topics. So let, let me hit you with a couple of uh, alternative views. And maybe you agree with some of these. But l l let's start with, with passive overall, because the thrust of the discussion that's out there in the public is on passive investing. Clearly, that was threaded through your piece. And if the real issue here is that there is this constant bid in the market, the, the relentless bid, because people have to save for retirement. I'm curious why passive investing is viewed as the culprit. Because to me, if the thought is, well, look, investors have to put money to work in stocks and bonds, right? That That's not a passive issue. That's just a, a, an investing issue. Yeah. So the the passive... Right. The same. I was just going to say the same thing would be happening, except money would be going into active funds, which, by the way, in aggregate, own all of the same stuff as passive funds. So I, why does passive seem to be in the crosshairs? Yeah. So for a couple of reasons, one is we've created a, a tax and legal system that effectively forces people into passive funds. Um, and I, I don't mean that in like a, a, a negative, like people are forced to do a thing they don't want to do. We've created safe harbors for corporations who we have told basically have to provide for their employees retirement. And those safe harbors are all based around passives, right? They're all based around target date funds. Now, could somebody run an actively managed target date fund? Sure. Maybe they exist. I've never seen one. Right. Um, but it could, it's not a particularly efficient way to run something, but you could. So, yes. Um, but the, the, the qualified default investment alternative, uh, which, you know, sort of came out of the, the GFC, um, that really, I think, embedded passive into the ecosystem in a way that it hadn't been before. It had already been happening. Obviously, the vast majority of 401k plans already had passive options, and those were the ones that were being overwhelmingly used for good reason. Right? I mean, we all know the math, right? There's a very good reason. Um, so, so that's the reason that I think passive is in the crosshairs is because we kind of baked it into the system. Okay, well then let, let me take this approach. So even for investors who are on autopilot, to, to your point, and they're uh, you know, putting money to work and, and passive funds in their 401k, they're still making a conscious decision to invest, right? They, they don't have mm -hmm. to put that money into the market. And in fact, I can tell you as an advisor, um, some people simply don't want to put money to work when markets are acting one way or another. I, I've seen that here recently. I'm not saying that's a good decision, sure. but right, it's a behavioral thing. And so my point is, if investors are putting money to work, um, isn't that because they want to own stocks? And if they want to own stocks in aggregate, well, guess what? Stocks are going to go up, right? It's not that it's alarming. It's that it's that it runs counter to uh, you know a hundred years of academic finance, right? So the uh, yes, on the one hand, uh, you know, I, I get into this argument with Barry Ritholtz all the time. He's like, oh, shockingly, things go up when everybody wants to buy. Yeah, it is that simple. However, the efficient market hypothesis would tell you that is not why stocks go up in value. Stocks go up in value in relation to their fundamentals. And what we're saying here is there's a new fundamental, which is presence has value, meaning being in the public markets and therefore being available as a target for retirement money 
itself has value. That's why flow matters. Now, we can say, like, you can relate that back to fundamentals. You can say that that means, well, the average PE of the S&P 500 should therefore be 22 instead of 16 because there are all these other use cases for the asset known as an index of stocks. Um, so that is a, that is an absolutely valid critique or, I guess, conclusion to bail, build off this, which is, yeah, maybe the markets should be more expensive now than they were in a pre-retirement savings market, right, in a 1986 market. Uh, you know, the PE should be higher. We should be valuing companies for a higher level than their fundamentals suggest. That's certainly what the markets have looked like lately. In terms of the uh, potential for bigger swings in the market, this convexity, these these fatter tails, I mentioned at the top, you, you know, Dave, I, I've been thinking a lot about this topic over the past several months just because there has been a lot more in the media about passive. And I, I want to approach this from a, a balanced perspective, right? I don't want to just assume because... Overall, I think that passive is a good solution for most investors. That doesn't mean there aren't uh, negative implications to that. And I don't know if you saw my uh, my tweet recently, but uh, I, I have something that I'm now calling Nate's hyper-efficient market hypothesis. But it, it sounds a lot like what you're hitting on. And simply put, the more I thought about this, I, I agree that the growth of passive is causing bigger swings in stocks. But I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. So, so, so to me, since more investors are sitting on the sidelines in passive funds, which means they're, they're not trading and they're not adding noise and, and friction to the market, that means active managers can more easily set prices in, in my mind, right? Because there are fewer competing forces for them to yeah. move a security to what they believe is fair value. So, so th this is so. There's a really interesting secondary paper by this guy named Bouchard who introduces this idea of like the time memory of a trade, meaning like how long the market remembers that a thing happened before we've moved on to new information. Um, I, I think you are correct in the short term, meaning if Tesla blows or blows away earnings, uh, the the reaction to that will be both more violent and over faster than it would have been ten years ago, or that it would be in the absence of any passive in the market. I think that's a reasonable conclusion. The flip side of that, however, is that, yes, they may be able to, say, reprice Tesla down 20% because of a bad earnings call or something like that. However, tomorrow, more money shows up to buy it. So the ability for a sustained repricing of something, I think, is impacted. Now, there hasn't been the work done yet that I've read that really gets in and examines that at the microstructure level. I think that work is just starting to be done. The last paper I read that was really good on this was like February. So like this is very current academic finance. Um, but yeah, I think I think that that is a reasonable conclusion that, that with fewer people all effectively owning Tesla for the same active reason right now, it will respond more violently when news hits that one stock. In terms of a um, quote unquote longer term solution here, I mean, my my understanding of how you view uh, what investors should be doing is that I think you believe passive works, right? That, that we know the vast yeah. majority of active managers underperform as a whole, even the ones who do outperform in any given year. They don't tend to have any uh, persistency to that performance. They can't replicate outperformance year after year. And so despite these various influences that passive may be having on the markets, my, my understanding is you don't really recommend investors do anything differently at this point. And, and then I'll, I'll add to that, you know, clearly the biggest takeaway in your article was that 
this decision we've made as a country to outsource retirement to individuals where they are responsible for their 401k and, and, and IRAs, and they're basically forced to invest in the markets. And because of the safe harbor and what you're describing earlier, a lot of those plans are being stuffed with, with passive funds. I, I guess what I'm getting at, I mean, is there a solution here? Because I don't see this changing. I think more people are going to continue to put money in their 401ks and they're going to continue to allocate I, yeah. to passive. I, let me let me respond by denying the question. I'm not sure this is something that needs a solution. I'm not actually sure we're identifying a problem that necessarily needs to be fixed any more than the efficient market hypothesis was identifying a problem, right? It was identifying a way the market seemed to work, just like the Black-Scholes model was identifying a way options seemed to trade until we got better models and moved on. I, what I think is happening is we're getting a better model of how prices actually are set in markets and the impact of the flows from, you know, from all sources, but particularly into indexing is impacting those prices. So I don't think it's a problem that needs to be solved. I think it's reasonable for policymakers to ask questions about whether or not we should or shouldn't be incentivizing certain kinds of asset management. And I think it's reasonable to ask the question about what are the implications for us having effectively uh, you know, privatized the retirement system for this country. That implies that the, the, the government is going to have to backstop markets in a deeper way than we might have expected otherwise, um, because more and more actual sort of suffering is going to result to the average American voter uh, in a down market because we are now an ownership society. We have just this huge investment in the market as a country. Well, it's such an interesting uh, topic. I, I absolutely love when you dig into things like this. And for listeners, go read the piece if you haven't already. It's posted at uh, ETFtrends.com. Dave, real quick before I let you go, uh, I will be talking uh, some crypto here during the rest of the podcast. I, I just have to ask you, do you have any quick thoughts on what we've uh, witnessed here recently? There's been a lot, but it, it's been a bloodbath overall. I, any quick takeaways? I guess my only takeaway is uh, a lot of crypto falls into the bucket of what I would call psychological commodities. You and I have talked about that before, meaning it's worth what people are willing to pay for it. That doesn't mean that it's useless and has no value. Just look at gold, which you know the the original psychological commodity. Um, so what we've seen is a lot of repricing around that based on investor psychology, which is utterly predictable and completely impossible to time. Um, and then the you know every time this happens, what what should emerge hopefully is a higher and higher value placed on utility in the space. Uh, and so I think what you see is crypto getting stronger out of this over the next year or two with a lot of folks getting flushed out, which, you know, this is how cycles work. And so longer term, I mean, are you still optimistic on the space overall? Because I'm seeing a lot out there right now where I feel like a lot of people in traditional finance are, are looking at what happened, say, with Luna and, and Terra and, and, and how uh, significantly some of these cryptos have declined and, and saying, see, I told you the whole thing's a Ponzi scheme, uh, right? That there's no long term uh, utility to what you were just saying. I mean, are, are you still optimistic on the space overall longer term without oh, yeah. pointing to specific tokens or coins? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, I am optimistic. I am optimistic about it as the the innovation hotbed for finance for the next ten years. Um, absolutely. Does that mean the value of anything in it is going to go up? I have no idea. I don't know whether Bitcoin could sit at thirty grand for the rest of my life. I have. I'm not going to try to make a prediction on that. I think that we're still learning a lot in the decentralized finance sandbox, and I still think it's full of razor blades. Dave, fantastic stuff as always. Uh, certainly appreciate it. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Nate.
That was Dave Nodig, financial futurist at ETF Trends and ETF Database. I'm now joined by Greg Friedman, head of ETF management and strategy at Fidelity, who currently offers 51 ETFs, over $30 billion in ETF assets. And a quick little fun fact for you. Some people may not realize this. Fidelity actually launched their first ETF all the way back in 2003, pretty early on. That was the Fidelity NASDAQ Composite Index ETF, ticker ONEQ. But here more recently, their pace of new launches has really picked up. Already five new ETFs this year. That follows 13 new launches in 2021. And it's very clear from my perspective, one of the areas Fidelity is focusing on is thematic ETFs, which will be our topic of conversation this week. Greg is now on the line with me. Greg, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. So as I mentioned, it, it is pretty clear thematic ETFs have been a real focus for Fidelity recently. I, I mean, I count six of your last nine launches as thematic ETFs. To start here, I'm curious, what's been driving that? Thanks, Nate. I think it's really a client demand. We're always focused on hearing from our clients and trying to solve their financial needs. And the younger investor and some of the newer investors are looking at thematics as a new way of investing. Historically, you know, some of the older methodologies have been the nine style box, sector rotation. Um, but we're seeing now clients, especially the younger clients, are looking for how can they invest their wallets with their, their hearts? You know, how can they understand this? So, you know, trying to explain to a younger investor or a, a, a different type of investor newer to the markets, um, about value growth and the split and what makes a value stock versus a growth stock. You know, uh, theoretically, it's, it's an interesting conversation, but people are looking for, you know, how do I get into things that interest them? So clean energy, um, cloud computing, metaverse, uh, crypto industry. You know, these are things that people can grasp. They have a viewpoint. They want to be part of that industry. So we're seeing thematic investing as kind of the next frontier of, how people think about investing. And at Fidelity, then, we are always looking at the client demand and saying, you know, if the clients are looking for that, how can we deliver product that's unique, that's differentiated, that will help the end client's needs in the investing uh, frontier? On that note, if we were to just take a, a step back here, I think most investors are obviously familiar with the Fidelity brand, right? You have a very well-known mutual fund lineup, prominent funds like Contra and Magellan. Uh, you offer several zero-fee index funds, w which have been very popular. So so with that backdrop, what has been the overall approach on the ETF side? Like, like if we put thematic ETFs aside for a moment, what's been the overall strategy for building out the Fidelity ETF lineup? Sure. So what we're looking at is how do we differentiate ourselves to our competition? How do we add value to our clients? So we've always been focused on choice, value, innovation. 
So in that construct, if you look at the ETF you know, history books, you know, back in 93 with the invent of the spider, um, chapter one, in my mind, has always been passive or indexed uh, type ETFs. Um, we're seeing chapter two growing. Uh, we're still in that chapter with, you know, smart beta, thematics, exposures, factors, you know, kind of how do you take the next step into really sophisticated investment concepts and put them into ETF form. And then the third chapter, which is still relatively nascent and new, but we're, we're a leader and we hope to continue to be a leader in the space is active ETFs for both fixed income and equity. Now, fixed income's had active ETFs for you know, 10 years or so, but the active equity ETF is still relatively new to the marketplace. So at Fidelity, our, our goal is how do we add value? So when we think about that, it's what can we bring that's unique? So in our mind, it's we are focused on smart beta and thematic investing and active. You know, there's a ton of great passive products out there. You know, iShares being one, you know, fantastic partner of ours. You know, that's how our clients can get their passive with their beta experience. But for us, what we like to think about is how do we take that 75-plus year heritage of fundamental investing, the research, everything that's made Fidelity, as you said, you know, known, and then codify that either into rules-based products around the thematic and smart beta or being able to bring active products, both fixed income and equity, to the marketplace. So we're really focused on Chapters 2 and 3, which is smart beta thematic as well as active. All right, so I mentioned those six thematic ETFs that launched over the past year. Those include ETFs covering digital health, cloud computing, clean energy, electric vehicles. And then your most recent two launches, actually in April, were the Fidelity Crypto Industry and Digital Payments ETF, ticker FDIG, and the Fidelity Metaverse ETF, ticker FMET. And we're going to focus in on those two, which I think is timely, just given everything going on uh, in crypto right now. And we can talk about that if you want. But let's first look at FDIG. What, what is the approach here? So it's taking, once again, looking at that research. Um, the same research that goes into our active mutual funds, active ETFs. We've taken that, that research and codified it into a rules-based methodology. Um, this particular index is really focused on crypto mining, crypto, uh, cryptocurrency trading, exchanges, blockchain technology, as well as digital payments. So we're looking at you know, a universe and then taking our research to create screens to really get granular, pure exposure to those segments of the crypto industry and digital payment that is a liquid model or model-driven that clients can get exposure through uh, in an ETF form. And last I checked, the top five holdings in that ETF were Block, Coinbase, Marathon, uh, Riot, and then Hut8 Mining. Um, And then, Greg, on the Fidelity Metaverse ETF, ticker FMET, just give us a quick rundown on what that holds. So, once again, it's an index methodology based upon a universe that's been screened by our own research um, that has uh, companies that are um, computing hardware, for example, digital infrastructure, design, engineering, software, gaming. It's really the future and the technology around uh, the Internet. So it's a very exciting space. Uh, there's a quality screen on that one um, that gets a little more in terms of um, uh, a custom model-driven uh, approaches to this exciting space of, of the metaverse. Yeah, and again, top five holdings here I show is Meta, Apple, Alphabet, Adobe, and Tencent. 
And another uh, interesting fact here is that both of those ETFs, I believe, are the lowest fee in their category at 39 basis points. Um, Greg, Greg, one thing I I also noticed about both of these ETFs is that they are self-indexed, right? They use proprietary fidelity indices. Why go that route? And then I'm curious. I mean, you mentioned active a couple of times. Why not just go active management here? Um, because, you know, in some ways, when you have a model approach, it allows you to be very specific and, 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 and prescriptive to how you're doing it. So the clients get and advisors can understand what's in it. Why is it there? What's the model? And they can do some 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 work themselves on that. So there is an advantage to go model-based approach versus active. We believe in both, obviously, uh, at Fidelity. The the method that I spoke about before, where we take the research, it's really worked on by the, our quant team. So we have a very established uh, quant division that, A, creates these rules-based or codifies these uh, products into an index-type form. But these are the same quants that work on the active um, strategies for us. So it's a very unique um, construct where we have quants embedded in the active management of Fidelity that are also creating the indexes. So, you know, we really are bringing the best of Fidelity um, into the space, into these index-type products, because these are the same quants and the same research that that powers Fidelity's active uh, for 75-plus years. In terms of the uh, current market environment, obviously it has been very tough sledding recently for crypto and NFTs and in the quote-unquote disruptive tech space. Do you have any thoughts on what we're seeing right now, or at least on how you think investors should view these spaces moving forward? I mean, it's an exciting space. You know, it's taken a lot of media and a lot of attention. A lot of people are interested in it. So, you know, we are, as a firm, looking at crypto very seriously across many different business lines, capabilities, um, products. Um, so we are, you know, just as excited as probably our clients and advisors are to, to see how this goes. But we are, you know, taking a very strong look as well as, you know, a, a perspective of we want to be leaders in this space. Going back to where we started the conversation, you know, I, I think about your other thematic ETFs, which do center around more disruptive themes. I, I'm curious, just overall, how do you view the role of these in a portfolio? And I'll contrast that a little bit with the fact that. Many of your most popular ETFs are traditional sector ETFs, right? Technology and healthcare and financials, energy. So how do you view the role of thematic ETFs versus these more traditional sector ETFs? Should they be used similarly in a portfolio or do you see different use cases? I think in some ways they should be used similar. You know, as we spoke about at the beginning of our conversation, you know, there's been the nine style box, there's been sector rotation, and this is just another methodology for people to invest, something that they can understand, that they can get their arms around, that they can, um, you know, really vote with their wallet. So, you know, people looked at the nine style box, let's do value growth, let's do size. People looked at it from a factor, momentum, um, quality, you know, um, low volatility, et cetera. Others have, as you've mentioned, you know, some of our more successful products have been on the sector side, so you can do sector rotation. This is no different. This is just a different way of thinking about investing. You know, and our goal as Fidelity is how do we offer those building blocks, the thematics that people want to use to invest in different ways now, but bring quality to them, bring different perspectives and bringing the best of Fidelity in that form. So, you know, in our minds, 
thematic is just another way of investing, another way for clients to get um, exposure and for us to help solve their investment needs. Well, Greg, appreciate the uh, perspective. A pleasure finally having you on the, uh, the the podcast. Congratulations on the recent launches. Certainly look forward to doing this again. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. I really appreciate it. That was Greg Friedman, head of ETF management and strategy at Fidelity. Introducing Capital Group's new actively managed ETFs, a new suite of ETFs brought to you by a company with a proven track record of long-term results, a 90-year history of navigating ups and downs, and everything behind it. Give your portfolio active management at the core. Explore what's behind our new active ETFs at capitalgroup.com ETFs. American Funds Distributors, Inc., member FINRA. My last guest this week, certainly not least, is Kelly Yee, head of research at Coindesk Indices, which we'll talk about what they do, but Kelly herself is an ETF industry veteran. She previously led the ETF research and product development efforts at Index IQ. Prior to that, she was with New York Life Investments. Uh, before that, she was a senior fixed income strategist at Goldman Sachs, among other uh, pretty interesting roles. And she's now on the line with me from New York. Kelly, great to reconnect. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Nate. Great to be here. All right. So look, the timing is certainly interesting for us, given everything going on in the crypto markets right now. And uh, I, I do want to get into that. But I'd actually love to start by just talking a little bit about your background. And it's interesting to me because there have been several others in the ETF space who I would say have caught the crypto bug and move from traditional finance to DeFi. So I'm curious, what was your journey here? How did you end up going from ETFs to crypto? Yeah, sure. So as you mentioned, there are a couple of veterans that joined the crypto industry. And for me, crypto is almost like ETF industry 20 years ago. So there's not only tremendous growth opportunity, but also the need to really bring science and transparency to investing in this asset class. So when I was in Index IQ, we were known for democratizing alternative investments, right? And as you know, Nate, <laughs> it's very hard to find liquid instruments that deliver uncorrelated returns in the bull market leading to the COVID lockdown. So that's when I started looking at crypto and really thinking about designing strategies using Bitcoin. So one thing led to another. I got this opportunity to lead research at Coindesk Indices, and I'm really doing exactly what I did at Index IQ, but in a new exciting asset class. Okay, so as I alluded to, given everything going on in the crypto markets right now, I think we have to start there this week, and then we'll get into what Coindesk Indices is up to. But um, let, let me just open this up to you. I mean, what do you make of everything we're, we're seeing right now? We had this Luna and Terra disaster last week. Bitcoin has been more than cut in half from its highs. Pretty much everywhere you look, uh, it, it, it's not pretty. So how are you viewing all this right now? Yeah, <laughs> sure. It's, it's definitely not pretty. Uh, but crypto, when you think about it, it's still a nascent asset class. And investors need to be prepared for the volatility. 
So Bitcoin, as you mentioned, just cut by half, right? It has experienced multiple episodes of drawdowns of more than 50% in the past five years. So the recent Luna crisis, is, what's surprising is really the velocity of the sell-off. So Luna, the native token uh, for the Terra blockchain that's backing the UST stablecoin, experienced a drop of 99% last week so quickly. It's almost like the entire 2007-2008 financial crisis happening in three days. So I think the crash is really a true test to the DeFi market. So we'll see, you know, the jury is out there who is swimming naked as the tide turns. It's a painful process for many of us to watch, but it's also a necessary path for crypto to become a mature asset class. So go ahead. Well, let let me ask you this, because as I look out uh, at the discussion that a lot of investors are having right now, especially on the traditional finance side, I feel like there's a lot of debate over whether crypto as a whole is simply a risk asset that was fueled by easy money, right? The Fed Mm -hmm. and fiscal stimulus. And the the debate is whether this can be a a longer-term hedge and an uncorrelated asset, or again, if this is just a pure risk asset. And at the moment, I I think it does look more like a risk asset. To your point, it's still early in the space, so I'm not drawing any long-term conclusions. But do you have any thoughts on, on that debate in particular? Yeah, it's a great question, Nate, and it's a question we get, we got asked a lot. So I'll actually first take a step back and ask, which crypto are you referring to? Because, you know, there are roughly 5,000 to 6,000 tokens listed on some of the popular crypto websites. They actually all have very different use cases and technologies behind that. So when you say, like, is crypto risk yes or a hatch, uh, it, it really depends, right? So at CoinDesk Indices, we developed this uh, cl- digital asset classification standard, which is just like how equities, uh, how the sectors and industries concept work in equities. So, for example, right, Bitcoin is a currency that's serving as medium exchange for unbarred global transactions, where Ethereum is more like a smart contract platform that serves as a foundation to build the digital economy. So although there's, you know, positive correlation between the performances of Bitcoin and Ether, there are also plenty of times where they deviate. In terms so of, one, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that, that's one thing I want to emphasize. But even when you focus on Bitcoin for a second, right, the correlation between Bitcoin and risky asset classes, for example, equities, has evolved over time. It started low, but become higher, right, as investors are more attracted to the return to, to it because of the high return potential. So I do think, like, in the near term, the behavior of the market is largely driven by macro narratives and investors' flows. But as the asset class mature, it will definitely be driven more by the intrinsic value and drivers. I'm really glad you brought up the uh, digital asset classification standard that uh, was developed by Coindesk Indices. And I do want to talk a little bit more about specifically what Coindesk Indices is doing. But this is perfect in the context of our discussion because I was visiting earlier with uh, ETF Trends' Dave Nottig and made the point to him that there are a lot of people in traditional finance who, uh, again, are saying, hey, look at what happened with Luna. You know, it's all a Ponzi scheme, right? There's there's no Mm -hmm. inherent value here. And I'm curious, as you go through and evaluate the hundreds of digital assets that are out there, what what are some uh, markers you're looking at? What are some things that you look at to try to discern, uh, you know, whether or not a a crypto may have staying power longer term is something that is supported and is robust versus something that may be fly by night? 
Yeah, I, I think really the, the classification standard serves as the first step, right? When you think about different type of digital asset, the first step is really thinking through their use case, right? Which is really what's driving the, the what's driving the network and adoption, right? So um, that's the first step. And second is really the technology behind that, right? Is it a layer one blockchain that's serving as the infrastructure or is it the decentralized applications developed on that? So having the first step of classify uh, the tokens into different categories will allow investors to do more homework in terms of understanding for each sector and industry what are the fundamental drivers, right? So if you see how the gigs or the equity sector drives investment for equities, people will start to build relative value models, right? Understanding different value drivers for different type of digital assets and then really build uh, portfolios driven by sort of the, the, the performance of different sectors, the benchmarks, and be able to understand their uh, investment better. In terms of Coindesk indices, I think many of our listeners are familiar with Coindesk, the uh, the publication, right? Obviously, one of the mm-hmm. top crypto news outlets. What's the background on the indexing business? Yeah, so so Coindesk started in 2013 and, and really became the go-to news source for crypto, like like Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, and the TradFi space, right? So, but there's also long traditions for news organizations serving as guardians and curators of financial indices. So, you know, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, the Financial Times, FTSE 100, and NK225, right? So having access to reliable and accurate and high-quality data will really enable media to tell better stories. And it's especially true for crypto because, you know, as a new asset class, it's also influenced by narratives, right? But narratives has to be backed by data. And, and also, there is no secret. And maybe it's like people, the difference between crypto and equities is like, there are a lot of like crypto prices, volume data that are gener- that are inconsistent among different sources and could be easily manipulated by vested interests. And this is really important for media, for trusted media company to have access to high quality unbiased data. And so is it primarily media who is using these indices or are there institutional investors now uh, utilizing these these indices? Who's the audience? Oh, so Coindesk Indices as a standalone business, we run a business model similar to index providers, right? So currently our indices are used and accessed by a lot of uh, investors in the ecosystems. For example, we have clients use our indices to back their index fund products. We have clients um, who, who use this indices for benchmark purposes, and we have clients who are really looking at it from sort of benchmarking and also building derivatives on top of the indices. I know we were talking earlier about the uh, digital asset classification standard. I'm, I'm just curious from your perspective as someone who has now been on both sides, on, on TradFi and, and DeFi, mm-hmm. what, what are some similarities and differences between uh, indexing crypto and then indexing traditional assets like, like say, stocks? Yeah, so what, what really excites me and, and drives me to the space is really the similarities in terms of building businesses on this new asset class, right? So when you think about the ETF evolution, right, starting from beta, basically what is really the market like, right? And to sort of more, I would say, customized beta to smart beta, and I see with the adoption of, of beta and the adoption of this classification standard, I, I definitely see a trajectory there. So that's the similarity. And the difference, uh, which I would appreciate more since I, I joined this asset class, is really the, really the difficulty of getting high-quality data 
So as I mentioned, it's, it's still uh, crypto trade on various exchanges and the prices on exchanges could be very different from each other. So getting just reliable data source to say what Bitcoin is worth at any given point in time is no easy task. And it requires a lot of engineering work in terms of getting the data from exchanges, cleaning them, and really aggregate it in, in a way that remove the outliers and reflect the best quality. And the second is there are a lot of crypto-specific events. When, when you're seeing equities, right, there are corporate events, but in crypto, the so-called corporate events could be very different uh, than the equities world. And I'm talking about the hard blocks, the soft blocks, and also the air jobs. So there are some new things for me to learn. I, I think that's very exciting. And throughout the process, I, I do see definitely more transparency and science that could be introduced to the asset class with the maturity of, of data, liquidity, and also index offerings. You mentioned there being a lot to learn. How did you get up to speed on the crypto space? I mean, I, I've got to tell you, I've spent years uh, trying to read white papers and books, and I feel like I'm barely scratching the surface. I mean, it can be complex. There's a lot to it. I, I'm just curious, what does your educational process look like on the crypto side? Yeah, I, I think part of this learning by doing, right? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> because I, I think uh, just just to tell you the the whole process when we classify digital assets, we really go deep into each protocol's website, white paper, and really try to understand not only just what they say they do, but what they are actually doing. So that turns out to be very helpful. And I have a team of crypto analysts who really had the background in the space that I can learn from. The second part is really follow thought leaders in the space, right? I mean, Nate, you play such a critical role in educating for ETFs, and there are a couple of thought leaders in the crypto space. And news website like Coindesk, really you can get unbiased information and really know what's going on in this market. Kelly, just a couple of minutes left here. In terms of the crypto investment space moving forward, especially as I think about this uh, bridge from traditional finance to crypto assets, which I've got to tell you, that's how I view ETFs. I, I view uh, I view them as a bridge. It's a way to get people who are already comfortable with traditional finance down this path mm-hmm. towards crypto assets. That's why I've been a proponent of a Bitcoin ETF. It's not because I think somebody should put a spot Bitcoin ETF in their portfolio, hoping it's going to go up, you, you know, a thousand percent. Hopefully they get a positive return. But I like the idea of it serving as this bridge between TradFi and DeFi. The question I have for you is, Sort of with that in mind, what what are some trends you're watching for in this space? Like, like obviously, we have this major regulatory backdrop. I think that's the centerpiece here to all of this. That has to get figured out, and, mm-hmm. and hopefully that will sooner rather than later. But what else are you watching for in terms of the evolution of crypto investing? Yeah, so I, I think the first thing is definitely more transparency through data and indexing. And you will see more data products and index products coming to the market really serve as price discovery mechanism to allow investors to have a good understanding of what is driving the market and what does the performance look like for different sectors. And the second is, I would say, more science introduced to crypto investing powered by data, right? Starting with the adoption of the classification standard starting with products that are really backed by uh, industries that are that are providing benchmark and access. And then with all that, right, there's evolution of investment models. So basically, as a manager, as I ask you the question, on how, how do people evaluate different tokens, right? With the data and models and standards in the, in the space, there will be more mature models being developed and more mature investment strategies being developed. And, and lastly, it's regulatory clarity, right? Um, with that clarity, that will foster more responsive innovation and more institutional adoption. 
Well, Kelly, really enjoyed hearing your perspective this week. I'm so glad we could finally have you on the podcast. It had been way overdue. Thank you for joining me this week. Thank you, Nate. I really enjoyed our discussion. That was Kelly Yee, Head of Research at Coindesk Indices. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, VanEck. If you would like to learn more about VanEck ETFs, you can visit VanEck.com. Next week, I'll be joined by Strategas Nicholas Bonsack. They're a new player in ETFs. He's going to discuss their approach. And then Armada ETFs, David Arback will go in-depth on the real estate market and the recently launched Home Appreciation U.S. REIT ETF. Until then... Have a great week, everyone.